Chapter the Twenty Ninth of the Manchester Man by Mrs. G. Linnaeus Banks. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. On Ardwick Green Pond. It was in vain Madame Broadbent waited on Mrs. and Mr. Ashton and solicited Miss Ashton's return to her establishment on her ultimate recovery. The pupil was not more shudderingly reluctant to be replaced under her despotic rule than the parents were peremptory in their refusal. When her plea for the maintenance of discipline failed, and she tried cajolery as ineffectually, she gave way to the expression of her natural fears that it would be the ruin of the academy if Mr. Ashton did not reverse his decision. He loved his daughter too well to yield, and Mrs. Broadbent went back to Bradshaw Street to find, as years rolled on, that she had been a true prophetess. The injury done to Miss Ashton's collarbone had been bruited about, and slowly but surely it helped to sap the foundation of the once-flourishing seminary. It continued to exist for some years, but its prestige was gone, its glory departed. Yet she maintained her personal importance to the last, and exhibited her flock in the lower boxes of the Theatre Royal on Mrs. McGibbon's benefit nights, with undiminished dignity through successive seasons. The rapidly ripening young lady had her will. She had done with the schoolroom forever, and her lessons on the harp from Mr. Horobin, and on the piano from George Ware, the leader of the gentlemen's concerts, came under quite another category. Nor did she think it beneath her aspirations to retain her place in Mrs. Bland's fashionable dancing-room, where she practised cotillons, quadrilles, and the newly imported waltz, with partners on a par with herself. But these were accomplishments, and we all know, or ought to know by this time, that accomplishments require much more prolonged and arduous application than the merely useful and essential branches of knowledge, theorists for the higher education of women notwithstanding. Miss Augusta was desirous to be captivating and shine in society, and so proud was Mr. Ashton of his beautiful daughter that he fell in readily with the expansive views of the incipient belle, and new steps or new melodies were paraded for his gratification week by week. But Mrs. Ashton, telling her daughter that knowledge was light of carriage, sent her to Mr. Mabbott's to take lessons in cookery and confectionery, and into the kitchen to put them into practice under the eye of Kezia. And, exercise being good for health, according to the same sensible mother, she was required to assist in bed-making, furniture-polishing, dusting, and general household matters, for which the young lady had little liking, and was not to be spurred into liking by any citation of her cousin Ellen's qualifications in these respects. She preferred to dress with all the art at her command, to make her beauty more bewildering, and to take her place at harp or piano or embroidery frame, ready to receive visitors, either with or without her mother, and to be as fascinating as possible, especially when Lawrence Aspinall was the caller or she would sit in déshabillé in the retirement of her own chamber, and read Moore and Byron, because they were tabooed, and the handsome lieutenant quoted them so enchantingly, while Cicely, who had something to answer for in this respect, bustled about and overworked herself to spare her darling Miss Augusta, who, with all her faults, must have been a loving and lovable creature to win such devotion from a dependent. It happened that the young lady received visitors alone more frequently than was desirable, 
Mrs. Ashton being usually tied to the warehouse in consequence of the interest Mr. Ashton took in the establishment of the Manchester Chamber of Commerce and in the project for the widening of Market Street and other of the cramped thoroughfares of the growing town, which necessarily took him much from home and his private business, to say nothing of the excitement consequent on the trial of Queen Caroline during its long progress. But the year 1820, which had opened only to close the long volume of George III's life, and to open that of George IV's reign at a chapter of regal wife persecution, which has few parallels, had itself grown old and died, and 1821 had thrust itself prominently forward. It came with a white robe and a frost-bitten countenance, which grew sharper and more pinched as weeks and months went by. It looked down on the currents of rivers and canals, on the secluded still waters of Strangeways Park, the oblong pond in front of the infirmary, and the leech-shaped lakelet within the area of Ardwick Green, until their ripples curdled under the chilling glance of the new year. Sterner grew its aspect as the shivering weeks counted themselves into months, and the shrinking waters spread first a thin film, then a thick and thicker barrier of ice between them and the freezing atmosphere. Every gutter had its slide, along which clattering clogs sped noiselessly, every pool its vociferous throng of boys, and every pond its mingled concourse of skaters and sliders. Of these, the infirmary and Ardwick green waters were most patronised, the former having the more numerous, the latter having the more select body of skaters, and consequently the more fashionable surrounding of spectators. The amusements of the town were then on so limited and exclusive a scale that long frost was quite a boon to the younger portion of the community, and during the sixteen weeks of its continuance, the green became a promenade gay with the warm hues of feminine attire, as ladies flocked to witness and extol the feats of husbands, brothers, cousins, or particular friends. There was no fear of vulgar overcrowding, except on Sundays. Working hours were long, and there were no Saturday half-holidays, so that only those whose time was at their own disposal could share the sport or overlook it. Amongst these, much to the annoyance of Mr. Aspinall, his son Lawrence chose to enrol himself, with less regard to the fluctuation of the cotton market or the comparative value of American or East Indian staples than the Cannon Street merchant thought necessary to fit him for his future partner or successor. The younger man had chosen to construe liberally the word gentleman, which had been the be-all and end-all of his training, and to regard elegant idleness as its synonym. What availed his fine figure and proficiency in arts and athletics, if he had no opportunity for the display of his person or his skill, and to throw away the rare chance the winter had provided, was clearly to scorn the gift of the gods. Accordingly, he spent more time on Ardwick Green Pond than in the counting-house, varied occasionally with a visit to the assembly billiard-room in Back Mosley Street, or a morning promenade in the infirmary gardens, from the open gates of which he generally contrived to emerge, as Miss Ashton descended the steps from Mr. Mabbott's, and just in time to hand her courteously and daintily across the roadway, and bear her company to her own door, discursing of recent assemblies or concerts, from the former of which she had hitherto been debarred, and of the last occasion on which he had the exquisite pleasure of seeing her at Ardwick Green, occasions which were seldom reported at home, 
any more than the chance meetings on her way from Mr. Mabbott's, and the reticence, be sure, boded no good. Dr. Hull had long ago advised outdoor exercise for the rapidly growing girl, and there was no embargo on her walks abroad, Mrs. Ashton suspecting no danger and no surreptitious meetings. Her visits to the green during the long skating season were quite as unrestrained, except that an escort became a necessity. Occasionally her mother accompanied her, sometimes Mrs. Wormsley and John, then there was generally a nurse and baby in the rear, sometimes Ellen and Mrs. Chadwick, and Augusta had always returned so exhilarated by her country walk, and so delighted with all she had seen, that once or twice, when imperative business withheld Mrs. Ashton from bearing her daughter company, as promised, rather than disappoint, the lady had made Mr. Clegg her deputy, an honour on which he perhaps set far too high a value. Mrs. Ashton would have drawn herself up with double dignity, and repudiated as an insult, the suggestion of any other of their salesmen or clerks as an escort for her beautiful daughter. But Jabez lived in the house, had lived there so long, had even from her childhood been the girl's frequent guardian, and proved himself so worthy of the trust, that she committed her to his care now much as of old, and perhaps all the more readily, because she saw, or fancied she saw, a disinclination on Miss Augusta's part to be so accompanied. In March the cold was as intense as in January, and Miss Ashton as eager to watch the skaters. One afternoon towards the close of the month, when the breaking up of the frost was anticipated, quite a family party had gone to the green, wrapped in fur-trimmed pelisses of velvet or woollen, with fur-rimmed hats and brobdingnagian muffs. It was not yet closing time when Mr. Ashton, always disposed to be friendly with Jabez, accosted him. The ladies are gone to the green, Clegg. Suppose you lend me an arm along the slippery roads, and we go to meet them, eh? The sparkling eyes of Jabez confirmed his ready tongs. With pleasure, sir. As, sensible of the honour done him, he left the sale-room, whistled his black friend Nelson from the yard, and they set off at a brisk pace to keep the blood in circulation, the dog leaping, bounding, and barking before them in token of good fellowship. As they passed the infirmary pond, Jabez remarked that the ice began to look watery, to which Mr. Ashton replied, Yes, I think Jack Frost's long visit is near its end, and there must be some truth in the old saw that a thaw is colder than a frost. At that moment Mr. Aspinall's carriage rolled past them, bearing the merchant homewards in distinguished state. Private carriages were by no means common, whereat Mr. Ashton observed with a shrug, how pride punishes itself! Fancy a tall fellow like Mr. Aspinall cramped up in a stifling box upon wheels on a day like this, when he has the free use of his limbs. Contrary to expectation, they did not come in sight of the ladies until they gained the green, which they found in a scene of wild hubbub and commotion. Skaters and spectators gathering towards the centre of the green, whence came a confused noise of voices, shouting, crying, and screaming. The quick eye of Jabez was at once arrested by the figure of Augusta on the opposite bank, the centre of an appalled group, wringing her hands in the very impotence of terror, and as he penetrated the excited crowd, he saw the hatless head of a man whose body was submerged, resting with its chin upon a ledge of the ice, which had apparently broken under him. At the first glance he failed to distinguish the head from the distance, 
and rushed forward, apprehensive lest it should be that of either Mr. Wormsley or his friend Travis, who he knew to be of the party. Recognition came, accompanied by a shock that staggered him. If the ice had attractions for Aspinall and Wormsley, Ellen Chadwick had certainly as great attractions for Ben Travis. But it is certain that neither cousins, nor mother, nor aunt were sensible that they had been drawn thither simply as a sort of decorous train to Miss Augusta Ashton, whose inspiriting had in turn been the fascinating lieutenant, the most graceful and accomplished skater on the pond. Perhaps she hardly knew it herself, not being given to searching her own heart for its motives, but a hint from him had set her longing for another sight of the skating before the chance was gone, and her imperative will, no less than her persuasive voice, had swayed the rest. Lawrence had made the most of the occasion, glad of an opportunity to cultivate the acquaintance of the whole family, and display his graceful figure and his skill to the best advantage. Now and then he joined the Chadwicks and the Ashtons on the bank, anon darted off, wheeling hither and thither, so swift in his evolutions the eye could scarcely follow him. Amongst the skaters the man and his feet stood out. He was the observed of all observers, and not vainer was he of his accomplishments than was Augusta at being singled out for attention in the face of so many damsels of his acquaintance, all, as she foolishly supposed, equally desirous to bask in the sun of his smile. A small match will kindle a large flame, if combustibles be there. Fired by her too apparent satisfaction, and Mrs. Ashton's presence, his excessive vanity induced him to perform what, with the imperfect skates of the period, was a distinguished feat. He was ordinarily proud of his calligraphy. Now he wound and twisted, lifted his skates or dashed them down, until he had scored upon the ice an alphabet in bold capitals. But whether he had miscalculated his space, or the strength of the ice, broken into for the use of cattle at the upper end, or the crowd of inquisitive or envious followers had been too great for its resistance, as he made the last curl of the letter Z, the ice gave way, and he was plunged in up to the neck, amid the shrieks of women and the shouts of men. His chin had caught upon the ice with a stunning blow, but it rested there, and aided by the buoyancy of the water beneath, upheld him until, with returning sense, he struggled to bring his shoulders above the surface and upheave himself. He trod the water, and it sustained him, but the ice would not. He was forced to content himself with the use of his hands beneath as paddles, to relieve the pressure on his chin, and wait for help, which seemed an eternity in coming. He had been in the water some time when Jabez and Mr. Ashton appeared on the scene, amongst women shrieking with affright, and men rushing about without presence of mind or paralysed to powerlessness. Mr. Travis alone appeared to have a thought, and he had sent for ropes and hatchets to cut away to him through the ice itself. But there was a question, would his strength hold out? "'Will no one save him? Will no one save him?' cried Augusta piteously. Fifty pounds to him who will save my son!' was the cry of the frantic father who had witnessed the accident from his own carriage window. "'A hundred! Two hundred pounds! Five hundred pounds to anyone who will save him!' "'It's none a bit of use, maister,' said a working man with a shake of his head. "'Men wouldn't chuck their lives away for brass, and yon ice is like a pane of glass with a stone through it!' Unfortunately, 
impulsive Ben Travis had darted forward to his rescue at the outset, and his ponderous weight had cracked the already broken ice in all directions. He had himself retreated with difficulty, and now no offers of reward would tempt men to put their own lives in peril, though Kit Townley was there, urging others to the attempt, and Bob the ex-groom had rushed for ropes they had neither pluck nor skill to use, since a noosed cord flung like a lasso would have strangled him. "'Oh, save him! Save him, Jabez!' implored Augusta, as he and her father came up. Jabez looked at her strangely. His head seemed to spin. His face went livid as that on the ice. Had his secret devotion no other end than this? True, she had called him Jabez, but so she had called him in his servitude. She had appealed to him as one she trusted in implicitly, but the appeal sounded as made for one she loved, and that was not himself, but he who, as boy and man, had wounded him in soul and body. The very tone of her cry was as a knell to his hopes and himself. It was his foe and his rival who was perishing. Was he called upon to risk his life, to warm a serpent, to sting him again? The conflict in his breast was sharp and terrible. If thine enemy hunger, give him food, seemed to float in his ears. There was a small gloved hand on his arm, a pale sweet face looking up into his. The moments were flying fast. Oh, Jabez, Jabez, do try. I will, said he, hoarsely. Had he not often declared in his secret heart that he would give his life to serve her, and should he be ungenerous enough to shrink now? It is folly to attempt, I forbid it, exclaimed Mrs. Ashton, laying her hand on his arm, and Ellen Chadwick, pale as Augusta, tried to stop him with, You must not, you must not, you will perish. Even strangers from the crowd warned him back, but he was gone ere Mrs. Chadwick softly recalled her daughter to herself. Hush, Ellen, this is not seemly. Mr. Clegg will attempt nothing impossible. He hurried to the side nearest Lawrence, called to him. Keep up, help is coming, asked for ladders, gave a word or two of instruction to Mr. Ashton and Travis, sent Nelson on the ice to try its strength, secured a rope round his own waist, then, lying flat on the cold ice, cautiously felt his way to the farther side of Aspinall, whose eyes were closed, and whose strength was ebbing fast. He hardly heard the words of cheer addressed to him. Two long ladders had been lashed side by side to give breadth of surface. These, by the help of cords, and Nelson, whose sagacity was akin to reason, he drew across the cracked and gaping ice, and crept slowly from rung to rung, watched from the land breathlessly until he reached his almost insensible rival. With rapidly benumbing fingers, he secured strong ropes beneath each shoulder, sending Nelson back to the bank with the main line, in case his own strength was insufficient to lift the dead weight of Lawrence, or that the ice should yield beneath the double weight. Someone sent a brandy flask back by the dog. "'Can you swallow?' he asked. There was no answer, but a gurgle. He moistened the blue lips, while the head bent slightly back, introduced a small quantity of the potent spirit between his set teeth, and having warmed himself by the same means, essayed to lift the freezing skater, who was almost powerless to aid. But the latter, with an extreme effort, raised an arm above the ice, and grasped recumbent Jabez. 
and now Nelson proved his worth. He set his teeth in Aspinall's high coat collar, and tugged until their united strength drew him upwards and across the ladder sledge, almost as stiff and helpless as a corpse. To lessen the weight, Jabez crept from the ladders. They were drawn to the side with their living freight before he himself was out of danger, for the heavy pressure and the swift motion set the ice cracking under him, and with extreme difficulty he dragged himself to the bank to sink down on the hardened snow, overcome by the strain of mind and muscle, whilst the approving crowd set up a shout, and Augusta Ashton thanked him tremulously. "'I'm afraid, Clegg, you've spent your strength for a dead man,' said Travis, grasping his hand warmly, "'and Aspinall was scarcely worth it, alive or dead.' But Jabez made no reply. He rose slowly and painfully, shook off the congratulatory crowd of strangers and friends on the plea of needing to warm and dry himself, refused point-blank to accept the grateful hospitality of Mr. Aspinall, and taking the proffered arm of Travis, turned towards the Georgian dragon, as little like one who had done a noble action as could be imagined. Mr. Ashton followed, tapping his gold snuff-box in wonder and perplexity. He saw that something was wrong, but knew not that Augusta's hasty thanks had closed the young man's heart against all but its own pain. End of chapter the twenty-ninth